Hello there. How's it going? It's going really well. Thanks for asking. And more importantly, thanks for tuning into the second episode of Enlighten, the science podcast. It's nearly summer, isn't it? You can feel the weather getting warmer every day. Soon it'll be time to dust off the barbecue and slap on a slab of something tasty. What do you like on your barbecue? Chicken? Beef? Genetically modified aubergine? Well, probably not the last one this summer, but maybe in the future. Oh yes. Our topic this month is the somewhat controversial issue of genetic modification. Patricia Kloyhofer and I were lucky enough to discuss the topic with Professor Helen Sang, the Head of Developmental Biology at the Roslyn Institute. Professor Sang received a degree in Natural Sciences, specialising in genetics from the University of Cambridge, before completing a PhD at Cambridge on the mechanism of genetic recombinations. Professor Sang was then appointed as a Principal Investigator at the AFRC Poultry Research Centre, which is now the Roslyn Institute of the University of Edinburgh. In 2009, she was appointed Personal Chair in Vertebrate Molecular Development at the Roslyn Institute, where she's worked ever since. She's a Fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh and Fellow of the Royal Society of Biology. We spoke to Helen about a number of topics related to gene editing, including creating genetically modified food and growing drugs inside animals. It's a genuinely fascinating area of conversation, and I'm not ashamed to say that I came into this with some preconceptions that the conversation changed. I also make an extremely lame joke about Frankenstein asparagus about halfway through the interview, which I am ashamed of because it made me cringe a lot while editing this, so apologies for that up front. But without further ado, here's our interview with Helen. Okay, great. So thank you very much, Helen, for, for joining us this morning. Maybe we can start off by just giving you a chance to kind of introduce yourself and also some of the work that you do at the Roslyn Institute. Okay, so my name's Helen Sang. Uh, I've worked at the Roslyn Institute for a, an extremely long time, and I actually joined it uh, to uh, develop technology for making genetically modified chickens. And it proved to be really quite an almost intractable challenge. It, it was many years before we got anywhere, but now uh, I and certainly a colleague called Dr. Mike McGrew has been developing the technologies and now we're in a position where we have technologies to use new methods of genome editing to make specific genetic changes in chickens and we, we're looking at them for various purposes. So we're interested in chickens as chickens we eat, uh, poultry, uh, and they're particularly in disease resistance, but also the chicken embryo is a very nice uh, experimental system for looking at the development of a vertebrate. So that's the development of uh, animals like you and me, and we can't do experiments in humans, but chicken embryos you can access in an incubated egg very easily. So you can begin to get lots of the fundamental biology of the development of vertebrate embryos by using chickens and using genetically modified ones as specific tools. Okay, great. Well, I think we'll pick up that point later because we have some really interesting questions about why using chickens rather than other animals. But maybe we can start with a kind of brief hand-wavy sense. You know, how, how do scientists actually change the DNA of an animal? Okay, so we, we change the DNA of an animal in two different ways. One is we can introduce uh, completely new genetic st structures that we've made in a test tube, uh, and those are GMOs. Uh, and uh, that's what we did for some years, and we still carry out that sort of work. But now um, we're using these new tools called genome 
editors. Uh, the main one is CRISPR-Cas9. Uh, and that allows us to use a molecular tool to go into a cell and identify a specific, very specific part of a gene and make a change in that gene. And that's the really big advance we have of recent years. And it's very, very efficient as well. And when you're working in animals, particularly, you want the system to be efficient so that you're not uh, you know, using many animals to try and get the genetic change you want. Has CRISPR changed the way you guys work? Yeah, really? CRISPR has completely changed the way we work because it's so efficient and we can make very specific changes. So uh, we can find out often through the biology of, a, of the, the animal, something that we would know. We think if we made a genetic change in that, uh, we would make a, you know, make a beneficial genetic change. Uh, and I'll give an example in a minute. Um, that, it, that people by traditional breeding methods just can't do. So the, the um, best example, I think, at the moment is from other colleagues at the Rosman Institute, uh, led by Christine Tate Burkhardt, which is resistance to PRRS, PERS, which is a respiratory syndrome disease, a viral disease of pigs. Uh, and it's known from people who worked on the biology how the virus gets into the cell. Now, everybody knows a lot now about viruses getting into cells, so this has made, made our life quite a bit easier. Uh, and it's known that this virus binds to a single protein on the outside of the cell, and then it is taken into the cell and it, it uh, carries on its life cycle and causes an infection. Uh, and it was already known that the virus interacts with a small bit of that protein on the outside of the cell to, make, to start the infection. And you can use genome editing CRISPR-Cas9 tools to change the gene that codes for that protein. So you snip a little bit out of the protein. It's not there anymore. The virus doesn't have anything to bind to on the outside of the cell, can't get into the cell and can't cause an infection in the animal. That's really something you could not do any other way. Why? Why can you not do that with traditional breeding methods? Uh, well, there's two reasons there. One is you would you would need to understand the biology. And when you're breeding, it's sort of using a black box. You cross animals and you select for those that are resistant to a disease. But mm -hmm. to find the ones that are resistant, you would have to do a very large experiment and infect them with the disease to prove okay. the resistance. And that's not, you know, that's apart from not really ethical, it's also not really feasible. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you might say, well, uh, that you could screen pigs' DNA to see if you could find a pig that had this difference, so had this segment of a gene missing. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think, you know, that is vanishingly unlikely. It becomes a bit like just randomly throwing darts yeah. at a dartboard, right? You're going to potentially get closer to gene resistance, but you might also... Yeah, yeah, it's very unlikely you would have such a specific deletion of a segment of a gene. I mean, these sort of things happen all the time. We know that every generation that there are, when, when sperm and eggs are, are generated, yeah. it's imprecise. So there are always new mutations in the next yeah. generation. Uh, and uh, you also get recombination between chromosomes. So you get re reassortment of genes between chromosomes uh, and that can be inaccurate as well. You can lose bits of sequence mm -hmm. and things during those mechanisms. So there are mechanisms that happen, but to get that very precise uh, change, I think, would be unlikely. Mm. Okay. 
So, so is this one of the main things you're doing in terms of food is kind of trying to avoid diseases in uh, agricultural animals? Our main focus is disease resistance because it is very hard to achieve through the traditional breeding. Yeah, I see. So mm. that's that, and and it would be a big benefit. And the other way of, of um, you know, main other way of controlling diseases is through vaccination and, and antimicrobials. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to reduce the use of antimicrobials in livestock because that's one of the things that has driven antimicrobial resistance, which is a real problem for using those uh, medicines in human health. Vaccines is we all know a lot more about vaccine development now as well, uh, and you can imagine the billions that have been poured into the coronavirus vaccine development. There is just isn't the, that sort of money to develop animal health vaccines. Uh, and so the vaccine, and, and it's not that simple to get an effective vaccine, and then it needs to be distributed and so on. So if you have your resistance in the genetics, it sort of tackles the disease before it starts. Uh, and it's there in all the subsequent generations of the animals as well. So I think it is potentially a very powerful way of dealing with disease. But uh, talking about like an antimicrobial resistance, isn't there a danger of introducing that this way as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the things that we should have done when using antibiotics in terms of planning out how we use them, uh, those sort of things will need to be considered when uh, introducing genetics so that we don't form the risk, run the risk of driving evolution of of the disease. Uh, so that it overcomes the resistance and we can't manage it. So absolutely, uh, it can't just be put out there uh, and left. Uh, it has to be considered how it is applied. That's one of the, the questions we had, because I, I think this always has to be dealt with when you're discussing genetically modified food, this sort of like worry of what's going to happen if we start introducing mutations. Ha- has there ever been an unexpected negative side effect from gene editing? Or or is there any sort of common worries around this? There's only one genetically modified animal for food that has been uh, licensed. Well, and and I think there's now maybe one in South America as well, but it's a genetically modified salmon. So there is very little (laughs) evidence in animals. And actually farmed animals in a way don't have the same environmental risk that uh, genetically engineered crops do where where they some crops can there are wild relatives where you could get crossover of the genes for example herbicide resistance in some crops you can uh, generate herbicide resistant crops by genetic selection or by genetic engineering uh, and one is regulated and the other is not so the the big thing that we that people are arguing about now is we really need to look at the regulations, make them fit for purpose and not relate to the technology because the technology itself is not the risk. Mm. It's the outcome of the technology, which may have a risk. It's, it's, uh, we need to revisit how we regulate. And at the moment, the regulation is, is stifling innovation, I think. Yeah. But you don't want to have innovation without due oversight. Is, is this something that will hopefully prevent humans from getting diseases in the future? It's an interesting one. That's going a bit beyond my expertise in some respects, but uh, that is definitely where, where um, Mike McGrew and myself and uh, Wendy Barclay, who's at Imperial College, are still working on 
looking at modifying genes to make chickens resistant to bird flu. And, you know, that is for two purposes. One is to stop the impact, the very negative impact of bird flu and the, and the rather crude control measures that we have for bird flu in production of poultry, but also to reduce the risk of evolution of flu virus in birds that then crosses over to humans. And we see it every year. We hear reports, uh, I think there's one um, recently of some variant of uh, uh, bird flu being infecting people in Russia. It's all a question of whether it, once somebody's infected, whether they pass it on. And we know a lot more about that as well now. Um, certainly in theory, if chickens are resistant to bird flu, then that, that will be good for humans as well as the birds. Does a resistance against something like bird flu provide any selective pressure which could make more powerful diseases come about? I know this, we sort of are talking about this earlier in the context of antimicrobial resistance. Yeah, so this is you know, this is the work, like, like a lot of the work of Wendy Barclay, but uh, her lab has been working out. So bird viruses will grow in chicken cells, but not in human cells, mostly. Uh, and they've been identifying what the genetic differences are between birds and chickens for that, that and what is needed to support bird flu uh, virus replication. But also they've worked out that you could change uh, one particular gene that they published on in one way and the bird flu wouldn't be able to grow but it would be much more likely if the flu virus did get hold that it would then be more likely to infect humans as well so you really don't want to do that right right <laughs> so it's it's quite a complicated area you have to block infection of the birds but you don't want to drive the flu virus to evolve to become more bird flu virus to become more likely to infect humans. That's quite an interesting toss-up. Early on you mentioned that uh, you'd have to take measures to prevent genetically modified uh, chickens from or other animals from helping the uh, super viruses to evolve. What, what sort of measures? Well that's uh, I think that's something that's still under discussion. I think uh, so this is where I think I'm not an expert so it's to do with assessment of risk and regulation okay. and, and those processes you put in place. One of the suggestions is that you might have to have more than one genetic resistant mechanism mm -hmm. in there so that you make two or three genetic changes so that it makes it much harder because the virus would have to evolve to overcome two or three blocks mm -hmm. and that would be extremely unlikely. Kind of like genetic chess, you have to sort of plan ahead. Yes. You know, and it's like antibiotic use where, where the guidance is not to keep using the same antibiotic for years and years and years, but to switch them around because the resistant build up. So that, that sort of thing really needs to be considered. We wanted to ask a bit about how this works in a commercial sense. And are there kind of any issues with developing monocultures that are, are commercially owned? Well, I think we're there already, to be honest. Um, so... If you think about uh, broiler chickens, which are the meat meat type chickens, so the uh, so chickens of the people who breed chickens have uh, developed basically two sorts of chickens: they're egg laying chickens and they're meat chickens. And the meat type chickens are produced in their billions every year in the world, billions and billions. I mean, in enormous more birds than people. Most of those come from two poultry breeding companies. 
So they do the genetic selection and then those families that they select for various characteristics are expanded out and expanded out. And, and then the producers buy from one company or the other. And they're both international companies. So it's, it's already happened in terms of how that animal breeding genetic companies have developed. And, and, you know, we expect chicken to be incredibly cheap. And a lot of that is because the breeders have increased the productivity of the chicken yeah. enormously since the Second World War. So the amount of meat you get per, the, per kilogram of grain that you feed them has gone up enormously. And, and that in consequence means that you need less grain to produce your meat. So yeah. it, it's, I think it's something that um, people don't know very much about is the advances of animal breeding genetics. Um, and uh, so what we're trying to do is add in another tool uh, and that's getting a lot of attention that actually understanding the whole process of how we generate meat and efficient animals and hopefully healthy animals because you know, the breeders want the animals to be healthy as well mm. because nobody wants to buy unhealthy, you know, the people who produce them don't want to buy unhealthy animals. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I, I remember actually in your TED talk, I think um, you show a picture of a chicken from 1950. That's right. Of, of one from 2020. And the one from 2020 is obviously much, it's a really hench chicken, you know, it, it yeah. looks so much, you know, meatier in a literal sense. Yeah. It's um, something I, I, I hadn't really considered that there's only a couple of companies that sort of produce the world's chicken supply. That's interesting. Yes. And then and, and breeding of pigs and cattle, there's a relatively small number of companies as well. Mm. A very interesting area now is aquaculture. So the production of fish and even shellfish uh, is increasing all the time. And in Scotland, of course, salmon's really important. Mm. They're applying the most advanced animal breeding technologies uh, and can make genetic improvement very quickly because it's, they've basically not been genetically improved until recently but also looking at gene editing. You know, we hear about things like sea lice on salmon being a real problem. If they can identify some aspect of the biology of that infection and deal with it that way using a, a genetic edit, that would be immensely powerful mm. and would stop all the chemicals and other treatments that are going on to get rid of this horrible <laughs> pest. Yeah, okay, fantastic. So we wanted to move on to talk a bit about um, using animals as, as bioreactors for drugs. It's obviously been 25 years or so since uh, the Rosam Institute created Dolly. And I don't think we can have a conversation like this without mentioning Dolly, who was originally created as a, a, a vector to create, uh, is it factor nine? It's like a- That's right, yeah. Yeah, which was a drug to treat a blood clotting disease, was it? Mm -hmm. That's right. I wanted to ask how this field has kind of progressed in the last 25 years in general sense. Yes, it's, it's, it was one of the things that was suggested right back when genetic modification technologies were first developed is, can we sort of utilize the big protein production capability of uh, you know, cows, goats, sheep in milk and hens in their eggs to make valuable proteins that are used as, as therapeutics. And uh, we're seeing more and more actually protein drugs. Uh, a lot of them are these monoclonal antibodies that are like Herceptin that's used to treat breast cancer. 
And to be honest, it's not really ever taken off. There are niche uses. I know there's a company in the, in the States that, as I know, is still uh, using chickens to produce a particular drug. And we tied up with a, and a it's, it doesn't own, we don't, doesn't belong to the institute, a company called Roslyn Technologies, which is part owned by Edinburgh University. Mm. And they've sort of taken on the bioreactor. And the idea there is that you can produce relatively cheaply very large quantities of a particular protein that's a useful drug. And in some cases, you, you may be able to produce proteins, particularly in chickens, <coughs> that you can't produce in some of the other systems that are used. But it's not really ever taken off. And I think that's partly because big pharmaceutical companies, when they've invested a lot in a new drug, don't want to use a new system for making it. They yeah. want to stick with the system that they have established. I can, I can imagine until the sort of manufacturing pattern expires, they're probably not going to, um, you know, rethink their, their ways of doing it. They've spent billions yeah. developing. I think you may have kind of answered this question in a, in a hand-wavy sense. Why use chickens? I mean, what's the improvement over using something like, I don't know, yeast or, you know, gr growing it in a, in a vegetable? Is it easier to do in, in a... It's, in a it's certainly, uh, certainly for some proteins, it's extremely easy to do in the chicken egg. And it's a relatively... The egg white, which is where we directed it, not into the yolk, into the white, is also a relatively uh, low complexity environment. We did quite a work, bit of work on purifying from egg white. Uh, and it looks to be pretty uh, effect. You can effectively purify proteins. I think one of the issues is that in, in developing a new drug, an awful lot of the investment is in getting the drug itself not in the production. So production is part of the cost, but it's only a, a, to some extent a smaller part of the cost. So to move to another system that is cheaper would save you some money, but not as much as you might think, because you've got to get back the cost of investment in the development of the original protein drug. Uh, and I think that's probably one of the reasons that it's not being picked up more than it could have been. But I know there are some proteins that probably the chicken system would be really good for. So do you, and do you think that's an area that will develop in the future or do you think it's likely that, that you know, something else? Um, I like to think so because I put so many years into it. <laughs> 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 but uh, I've handed that over to other people now. So, mm. and, and, and actually people is, uh, you know, uh, do, do a lot of talking to people about genetic modification, what you might use it for and so on. One of the key things, messages you get back is that people are really interested in what you're using it for mm. rather than what the technology is. Mm. So making a, a, a drug in a hen's egg is a very, you know, quite an appealing idea. You get this, you know, everybody knows about eggs. You get this nice packet produced by hens that are just laying eggs like they normally do. The hens aren't affected in any way. So it is something that is uh, a, an appealing concept. And I think people would probably be quite happy be administered a drug produced in an egg or produced in in milk of a a, a sheep or a cow yeah absolutely i mean you know, if it's already an edible product it's sort of like you know yeah not. yeah you mentioned that there's it might be possible to produce uh, drugs or proteins with using chickens or mammals that are you can't really produce with cell lines yeah there, there's some uh, in the chicken that <clears throat> because it's not very closely related to mammals the uh, there's some proteins that if you try to produce them 
in a mammalian cell or in a in a sheep or in a mammal whole animal mm -hmm. they they would be biologically active so something like erythropoietin that stimulates production of red blood cells so human erythropoietin functions in mice and presumably would in sheep i think but it doesn't function in a chicken because it's too, too unlike the chicken form of that gene so that would be an advantage you want the you want to make the protein but you don't want it to function in the animal or the cell that you're making it in but you can still make it using like bacteria cells cells yes yeah, well it's interesting there are lots of different systems okay. there's cells there's yeasts there's bacteria yeah. uh, there's mouse or hamster kidney cells whatever but but you have to find the right system that's the most efficient for producing the protein that you want in the right form that you want so it's uh, easier generally to use chickens it, for some proteins i think it would be yeah okay so i mean moving maybe into a little bit of the realm of science fiction now can we use animals to do things like you know i don't know grow human organs and things like that well that's something that um I don't think there's any research in the UK going on about that, but there's still uh, a lot of interest in xenotransplantation, genetically altering pigs so that they uh, you could get donor organs from them that are not rejected by people. And that's an idea that was also around a very long time, but, you know, actually it's pretty complex, but there's still companies in the US certainly who are developing that approach. So it is possible that, that, that it, will, it will come. Hmm. Uh, and actually there's a big uh, program in Germany on xenotransplantation, uh, yeah. so altering the pigs so you don't get any, you, when you put an organ in, you get a sort of immediate response to reject it and then you get a long-term one. And I think they'd solved a lot of the problems of immediate response of rejection. Okay. They need to solve the problems of longer-term response. Hmm. So it's actually a possibility that at some point in the future we'll get organ transplants from pigs. Yeah, yeah that's certainly what uh, the people who work in that area are, are aiming for, yeah. That would solve a lot of problems, I think. <laughs> yes, I mean, the problem of organ transplants. But then, you know, it's, it's come, there are other technologies coming along. There's the whole uh, development of, uh, from stem cells mm -hmm. to develop organoids and develop more and more complex in tissue culture mm. and you see you know papers about little hearts and little <laughs> little kidneys in tissue culture dishes so there is a competing technology coming along i think about how you uh, replace a heart or a kidney uh, rather than just getting a whole one out of another species whether you can develop something that you can put into somebody that you've grown in a dish maybe even developed from their own cells so that there's no rejection issue. So there's other other approaches developing as well. So basically depend on, well, who manages faster to get somewhere. Yeah. And which one turns out to, you know, you never know yeah. each step. You come across something that's a, a, a challenge that you hadn't anticipated. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I guess this is a convenient segue to, to start talking about gene editing as it pertains to medicine for humans. Uh, I think there was, there was a story recently for CRISPR being used to cure hereditary blindness in a, in a human for the first time yeah. recently. Do you think this is likely to become something that is more common? Absolutely. So when you're talking about using CRISPR gene editing 
in human medicine, there's two ways of attack. One is to uh, repair or alter the, gen the genes in an individual. And the other is to change those in uh, an embryo so that you, it's called germline. So you, you change it so that the, the genetic change will be inherited. So you could say maybe somebody who has cystic fibrosis, you could uh, collect their egg when they want to have children. You could collect their eggs and you could make the genetic change in them and then their children wouldn't have cystic fibrosis. And that's a completely different challenge ethically and technically than treating somebody. And eye diseases are particularly at the forefront because it's quite easy to apply something to the eye. Yeah. And there people are looking at either using gene editing to correct a genetic defect or using gene therapy to introduce a new copy of the gene that's faulty, that works. So there's almost two kind of, you know, like ethical landscapes here, as well as technological yeah. landscapes. There's doing it on someone who already exists and then there's doing it on an embryo, which is kind of yet to be. Yeah. Uh, is, that yeah that's... So is, is it easier to do it for curing a disease which someone already has it depends on the disease that's why eyes are good because it's easy to get to them and it also depends on how many of their cells you need to change for mm. them to survive so we've got a colleague who's working on gene therapy so that's introducing a functional copy of a gene for cystic fibrosis and they're they're advanced now and trying to deliver that gene into the lungs uh, and delivering into the lungs is quite challenging because there's all the stuff that's there to get rid of things in the lungs, keep them clean. <laughs> so uh, that, that's, it, that's, I think, well on the way. And I think people are putting a lot of work into muscular dystrophy mm. and into blood diseases. So blood diseases as well are, are for gene editing, gene therapy are also relatively accessible because you can extract the blood stem cells from people genetically alter them and put them back. Yeah. So that's, but, but, but if we talk about gene editing, you know, for uh, the germline for the next generations, I find I move from being a scientist to being more of a member of the public. Yeah. Because I feel, you know, I feel my, I feel uncomfortable with that. I, yeah, I think that there is always, you know, this kind of worry that it's going to be used for nefarious purposes or not necessarily nefarious purposes, but that it will become necessary. You know, there's that movie Gattaca where it's like a future yeah. where everyone has had some sort of gene yeah. editing. Is there any kind of regulatory framework for approving a therapy which is, um, you know, related to gene editing for, for use in a, let's say, an adult human? Oh, yes, it's all, it's all heavily regulated. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. So it goes goes through the, as far as I know, it goes through the same regulation as any medicine. And uh, because the, well, I don't know how many years ago now, fifteen years ago, was some gene therapy trials that failed and and uh, a, tri a patient died. Ah. Uh, you know, they worked out what had gone wrong there. That was one of these unpredicted consequences. Mm. To some extent, I don't know enough about it to take a strong view on it. But there are now a, a big increase in the number of gene therapy type drugs that are being developed and they have to go through extremely uh, extensive and careful uh, you know, stages of clinical trial. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you know anything about um, any drugs that have been approved or in approval? I don't specifically. No, okay. 
Oh, that's great. It's the basic research that is being done on uh, trying to understand diseases in, in animals, actually. Does that help for the research in humans there as well? Yes, I mean, we think we think so. So I have colleagues who are um, have developed some models of human genetic diseases, mm-hmm. which will be either treated with dug, drugs or with gene therapy. I mean, these, mm-hmm. these options are there. Uh, and so they have, for example, a, a sheet model of a human genetic inherited disease. Uh, and because it's, you know, a lot of work goes on in mice, as the mm-hmm. first stage model, but they're very small. <laughs> and if you really want to really investigate how you deliver a drug that's uh, to deal treat a genetic disease which affects a, an organ or a system in in a person, you need to work in a larger animal. And of course, and of course, mice are rodents, and their physiology is pretty different from humans. So sometimes they're not very informative. Uh, so. I think these colleagues at the Rosalind Institute are developing some animal models that will be very useful for working out how to deliver medicines, whether they're gene therapies or other drugs. And and that's one of the things, you know, you can't say gene therapy will be the answer. You have to have an open mind and think it may be possible to have have a drug that will deal with this. You know, something like cystic fibrosis, I think people haven't found a drug. That's why gene therapy looks to be a very good option but but other things you might find especially and also if you have a large animal model you can investigate the the biology of the disease much more you can't keep taking bits from people to sort of investigate the consequences of their genetic disease uh so you can you you never know what you'll find that will point you to using and developing a new drug or even repurposing uh, an established drug and you can't really model that either, can you? You have, like, uh, theoretically, I mean, computational. Theoretically, no. I think, no, it's too complicated. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Uh, so I think moving, maybe something, zooming out slightly, we're obviously coming to a point where we're leaving the EU and Scotland has had a basically complete moratorium on um, any kind of genetic editing. But now that we're leaving the EU, we're kind of reconsidering that as a as whether whether to allow that in the UK. What would you like to see um, moving forward? Um, how, how would you like to to see that changed? Well, I think with the crops and the, the because I've been involved in lots of discussions about this. You know, what do we? What are the opportunities for us to have new have our own regulations? And the first thing is you have to think about. You know, we're only a small country, so. You know, we may change our regulations, but will other countries want to buy our food if it's been genetically edited or genetically modified? So that, that's a sort of pragmatic issue. But I think that I and, and most scientists involved in this area would like to move to something that is a, a proportionate risk and regulation of the outcome rather of the genetics, rather than all edited, have to go through the same very extremely um, demanding and expensive regulatory process. We don't, uh, we don't want to bring in additional regulation for systems that have been going for many years and have by sort of default been proved to be safe. But the regulation of uh, GMOs is, is enormously cumbersome and expensive and it, it stifles you know small companies coming in and, and developing things so 
that's what we'd like to see. But I, I do think it would be a, a big mistake to just say, right, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to allow this because there'll be a backlash. And, and you know, we, we did allow GMO food in the UK years ago. And uh, there was GM tomato paste for sale in the supermarkets. I had a little explanatory leaflet saying, you know, what the GM was about. It's this idea that GM or GE is some single evil or technology that is risky. It's, we need to find a way to, to get over that. And, and, and I think that being various public dialogue exercises in the UK and, and it comes out with what people are interested in really and what they value is what the, what the product is that people are trying to develop. And, uh, and they are concerned about large multinational companies mm. controlling our food. But of course, that is what it, we already have that. And I'm, I'm not convinced that introducing uh, genome engineering technologies will uh, make that worse. Uh, it will just carry it on. Uh, and, and we have to think about there are many other issues that concern members of society. And we have to respect those and, and, and think about how we work, work on those mm. and try and separate this emotive uh, idea about GM from these other issues. Yeah, I think the psychological response is one of the potentially one of the main problems here, because I, you know, I've done a bit of reading now just researching for, for this podcast. Even I, when, when we came up with the, the idea for, for doing this, I was a bit, you know, you, you, you have that kind of the, that initial emotive response of, you know, I don't know if I want to eat Frankenstein asparagus. I think it, that psychological response is difficult to overcome. And I wonder how we could, I mean, you know, I guess public outreach is, is one of the ways. Public outreach is really important. And um, I mean, we've done quite a lot through the years at uh, people from Rosalind Institute. And, you know, I think being open is, you know, my work involves animal experiments. And that used to be all done behind closed doors and everybody didn't like, you know, you were told don't ever talk about what you're doing in a pub. Somebody might hear you and they might come and blow up, you know, that Ian Wilmot, who led the Dolly programme, you know, got a lot of advice about personal security because he was on an animal rights hit list. Um, but, but there's the academic community involved in animal experiments has sort of got together um, in the last, I guess, 10 years or so and realize that really we have to be open about what we're doing. Uh, and I, I, I'm a huge, huge, uh, hugely in favor of being open about what, what we're doing because it frees up the people involved to be, to be open about what they're doing, to feel proud of what they're doing, to discuss what they're doing and you know, get under, begin to understand what people's concerns are. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we should be applying that in which many people individually are doing in the genome editing field. Um, and I, I personally don't think that there is as big a proportion of the population who are against genome engineering, as is often made the case. And these sort of franking food headlines, sort of like they just like to stoke it. Uh, but actually, if you if you are open and talk to people, they're much more interested. So I think the PERS virus resistant pigs, you know, people can understand that that's a, really a beneficial use of the technology uh, and certainly 
farmers and producers really would like <laughs> like to be able to access that yeah. because these diseases are a, a terrible problem and, and people who farm animals uh, care about the animals and when they have a disease they can't do much about they they, they have a it's very traumatizing yeah. as well as an economic challenge I, I think communicating that that public good is 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 really important and I mean there have been some real success stories is it the the golden rice um, was edited to produce vitamin A and that's avoided I don't know the statistic you know 500,000 cases of blindness per year um, you know there are real benefits from using these things yes it, it, the, 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 um, in uh, it Pakistan and Bangladesh uh, they made aubergine which is called brinjal there uh, resistant expressing an insecticide BT uh, because the crops of the farmers who are often very, very small scale farmers were just being completely wiped out by an insect pest. And that was made available free. And I, the, I think one of the issues is that people don't really like to think about where their food comes from and that people are making money out of it. Uh, and it's, so it's a really complicated discussion that needs to be had because most people go in the supermarket and buy what they want to eat without knowing what's gone on to get it there. Yeah. And uh, uh, and if you say that there are scientists in labs making playing around with genes, <laughs> it doesn't sound very good. <laughs> yeah, I think you know, especially when it comes to something like uh, you know, like a, a meat product, because you think, oh, you know, we're changing the the genome of of, a, of an animal. There's a mm. revulsion, but actually, as you say, you know, this is being done anyway, right? You know, it's being done through selective breeding on a on a mass industrial scale, and so. There actually, you know, isn't necessarily. It's not necessarily that far away from what's already happening. Yes, and and uh, I was, <laughs> I quite often like to say talk about dogs, because mm. uh, dogs are all descended from wolves, so they all started out the same, and we have selected them for teeny tiny little dogs and huge great big dogs and uh, you know pug dogs that can't breathe properly. You know, the, we we all know more, much more now that many of the breeds have genetic diseases in them uh, that uh, will, you know, by the time the dog's middle age, be causing them significant problems. But we don't see that as our fault because we've done, we've genetically selected them, but that's what's happened. And we're quite happy that people have dogs that have genetic diseases. And they're much yeah. worse than <laughs> you could say than the effects of genetic breeding on the chicken. I don't know. I mean, I I know people who are who have no issue with genetic editing or genetically modified food, but it's more the issues surrounding it. it for, they are, for example, critical of making it worse with the companies, with monopolies, with intellectual property rights, with less diversity in the genome, etc. All of that. Yeah, and and you know we we are, we domesticated animals over the last ten thousand years and crops. And, uh, you know, we've been working with what we, our ancestors selected almost. And some of those things are characteristics are things we don't want now. Mm -hmm. And there are more problems of diseases and so on. And we don't want to be dumping chemicals on our fields again and again. You know, the colleague at, at the Sainsbury lab in Norwich is working towards blight resistant potato because ancestor potatoes were resistant to blight, but not what we have selected. And he's looking at related species and can you know, identify the, the, the genes they have that are responsible for them being resistant to blight. And at the moment, farmers who farm potatoes 
are dumping chemicals on weekly to control blight. And they don't want to do it. They would much rather have a genetically resistant potato. But you don't want to, you can't just go to these old varieties because they're very unproductive. Mm. You want that genetic characteristic in your uh, new, more productive varieties. It's actually really interesting. I hadn't heard about that, that there are varieties that are resistant already because a lot of the public discussion I've heard is around introducing new things. And I think that's what sometimes the fear is about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah some of it is certainly in crops. I, I should have been a crop genome editor. So many more opportunities. Uh, you know, a lot of it is, is, is quite sort of chance as to where we've got to now in the genetics of the production crops, you know, tomatoes or wheat or, or maize or potatoes. And we don't, haven't brought along some of the characteristics that turn out to have, would, that would have been useful. Mm. So you can go and look in, in either wild, in wild relatives basically and see if they've got those genetic characteristics, identify the specific genes. But you, you can't really introduce that by genetic crossing. You would lose all the benefits of many years of uh, breeding and mm -hmm. sometimes they're not compatible for crossing anyway. So GM is the way to bring those beneficial genes, you could almost say, back into your crops. Um, we're hoping to kind of bring this out to a, a slightly younger audience. If you had one piece of advice for someone who wanted to become a genetic engineer, if you will, what would that be? I think to be, you have to do, if you want to carry, be a scientist at all, is to be really interested, you know, find it exciting, be curious. So it's something that you find really interesting and you have a great curiosity about. And I think, you know, these technologies are amazing and if people who also have, you know, think about the ethics. It's, you have to do, do this sort of science in a bigger context than just the science, I think. Mm. So you, you need to be interested in what other people think about it and how you talk to other people about it and engage with people. So, I mean, I think it's a really exciting field to be in. Uh, and there's so many more opportunities now than when I started out. So uh, I think it'd be a great place, great area to get into. And would you would you recommend that people become crop geneticists instead? <laughs> I think there are more opportunities in animals, and I think the whole um, issue of regulation has really stifled development in that area. So, if the regulation becomes means it's more possible to apply the technology, then people will be beginning to use their you know their initiative and curiosity about the biology to work out new opportunities. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us. I think that kind of brings us to a like a, an actual closure. Um, I've really enjoyed speaking about this. Okay, yeah, very interesting. What you were looking for? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's been really, really great. Great. That's the end of the interview, and I hope you found it interesting. Although we were only able to scratch the surface of what is an extremely complex area. We just want to say a big thank you once again to Professor Helen Sang for joining us this month. And of course, thanks to you for listening. We'll be coming back with our next episode, which is a special two-part episode about human sporting performance during the period of the Olympics. So do watch out for that. Otherwise, see you again next time. Take care. Enlighten, a science podcast is created by Andrew L, Patricia Cloyhofer, Shan Zhang and Ollie Higgins for CISMA. We'd like to thank the CDT ISM for funding and support. 
The intro music for this episode was by Joseph McDade, and it's called Space is Invisible Mind Dust and Stars Are But Wishes. Thanks very much. I'll see you next time. <laughs>